Well, tonight we're going to John chapter 5. The thing I like about that song, doesn't matter how bad the singer is, still a great song. Uh, Still a a great reminder of the life-changing power of the gospel. Tonight, as we look at John chapter 5, we're going to take a a look at a story that you may be familiar with, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And I'm going to share a message with you entitled, Give Them Jesus. And as I said before, I'm 99% sure it's going to make you uncomfortable because it makes me uncomfortable. When I read this passage and I see how many of uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees passed by countless people that they did not feel were worthy of their time. How many people, when we think about who we want to invite to church, how many have we pre-culled? You think about that. How many have we already said don't fit the mold? John chapter 5, let's begin reading in verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then, first after the stirring of the waters, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. Thank you that the old rugged cross made the difference for me and for countless people here tonight. Lord, I pray for that one here tonight that's never experienced the power of the cross, that's never experienced forgiveness that comes by the blood of Jesus, cleansing from guilt and shame having uh, the anger of God against them removed and being made free to live, free to worship, free to serve. Lord, if one of those people are here tonight, I pray that you'd save them by your grace. God, that you would open their eyes, that they would see their lost condition, that they would see uh, that they are dead in their sins and bound for eternal damnation. But may they also see the beauty of Jesus who came and died as the perfect spotless lamb of God 
who was tempted in all ways like we are and yet was without sin, who went to the cross and died in our place that we might have eternal life. May they see Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior and run to the cross where his blood covers all of our sins. Father, we know even if there aren't any of those people here tonight, there are thousands of them not too far from here. Help us, Lord, to ask the difficult questions tonight, like, what am I going to do about it? Do I even care? Have I dismissed them already? Oh, God, teach us to pass on to others the grace and mercy that has been given to us. Uh, Lord, we know that ultimately we're not the ones who give it, but we are the messengers. Uh, we, we are the couriers. We are the heralds who declare that Jesus saves. So God, I pray that you'd speak through me tonight. And God, that you take your word, cause it to fall on hearts that have soil that is ready to receive it. And Lord, that they'll take it to heart and be moved to do things they've never done before. That they'll be moved to destroy excuses that they've made for decades. That they'll be moved to love where they've not really loved in the past. That they'll be moved to give where they've not given. That they might be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. When I was growing up, my, my dad was a, a woodworker by trade. And uh, one of the best uh, timber cutters I ever saw. Now, he didn't do it full-time. He did it part-time. Uh, when I was a kid, very, very small, uh, he, uh, he bought an 075 still. And uh, if you don't know what that means, that's a hoss of a chainsaw. It was the second largest one they made then. And the 090 was really used more on the West Coast. Uh, my dad was known to, to drop trees that were over three feet in diameter in about three or three and a half minutes. And I only saw him miss twice. And those were small trees on hillsides. The moral of that story was gravity wins. Uh, he went to drop them here and they went here, never hit anything. Uh, the only thing he ever destroyed was one chainsaw bar. But with that, I got to ride along sometimes when I was a little kid. And I remember one time we went to Beachy Sawmill. That was uh, a, a Mennonite sawmill that was a few miles up the road. And I remember how impressed I was with guys starting about Jasper's age that were working that sawmill. Now, OSHA might have had a fit if they had been watching these kids doing everything from uh, running an edger to off-bearing to banding slabs. And one boy out there who was a teenager uh, with a lumber stick. If you've ever seen a lumber stick, it's a flimsy yardstick with a metal hook on it. And it's got numbers on it. And you can hook and flip and hook and flip. And within seconds, he knows how many board feet's in that one. He sends it out on this roller rail. This one goes this way, running out tens of thousands of feet of lumber every day. The boy, even though he was young, knew how to cull a piece of lumber in about two seconds flat. Now, in the lumber industry, number one, that is very impressive. And number two, it's absolutely necessary. 
I fear, though, that we have figured a way to do the same thing in the church, and we don't use a stick. We do it in a way that's far more subtle with a a couple of glances of the eye and a a couple of pieces of information that we pick up pretty quickly. Uh, We have already determined that these go in this stack, these go in this stack, y'all go in the slab pile because we can't find any use for you. And we need to stop and ask the question, which pile would I be in? Now, we'd all like to think that we were, we'd be in the FAS pile. That's, that's first and second. That's the best of the lumber. I mean, you, at least you might make select. That's still pretty good. You know, everybody else is going to be from too common down. That's the naughty, ugly kind of stuff that we really don't have a whole lot of use for. It's got its place out in the barn somewhere when nobody's really going to be looking. It would be kind of an embarrassment if you put uh, two common lumber on your walls in here. And we get the idea that we'd be embarrassed if we brought two common uh, people in this church. So I want to raise the old question tonight. What would Jesus do? That's not for a bracelet or for a bumper sticker. That's for life. That's for checking our motives, checking our hearts, checking our attitudes on a very regular basis. Am I acting and thinking and feeling in a way that represents my king? Or does it dishonor my king as I represent my flesh and all of my biases and all of my prejudices? By the way, prejudices aren't just just racial We have numerous ones. When we look at this text, we find uh, an ugly situation that most people did absolutely nothing about. Before people were saying it, they were already acting out, it is what it is. By the way, that's my least favorite saying. How could it be anything other than what it is? It's our way of saying, well, that's what it is, and there's really nothing we can do about it. But I guarantee you there are some people here tonight that some people once thought of them, well, that's just how he is. That's just how she is, and there's really nothing that we can do. Well, let me say to you in one sense, you are right. There is nothing that you or I can do to change the hearts and souls of lost men, women, boys, and girls, but we know who can. Have we ever talked to them about him? Have we ever said, did you know what Jesus said about this? Do you know how much Jesus loves people whose lives are in messes? Tonight, I want to challenge you to show people that Jesus can change their life. Show people that Jesus can change their lives. And I want to share with you tonight four keys to that process. Number one, we have to see the needs. Look again in in verse one. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus frequently did things during feast. Why? 
because there's a lot of people in town. And if you want an audience, it's going to be automatic. And so in verse 2, we find now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos or five porches. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. These are, as you might imagine, the rejects of Jewish society. These are the people we find Jesus regularly interacting with, healing, preaching the gospel to, while the Pharisees look back and sneer. Why does this man eat with sinners? You know, by the way, sinners is everybody else, not them. The meaning is, why does Jesus eat with these people like prostitutes and tax collectors? And these folk, the idea was, they have those problems because God has already judged them. So if God has already judged them, why do we want to mess with them? When I was very young, we went to church with a man that my dad had gone to church with all his life, Mr. Floyd Ayers. Uh, he, was, he was a rather unique man, and he had a little bit of superstition. And uh, most all of us out in the country uh, burned wood, at least at some time. And sometimes one of, one of the most available trees was a tree that lightning had struck uh, and killed, blown the bark off of. It was no longer any good, whether it was still standing or not. Mr. Floyd's reply was, oh, no, if the Lord doesn't want that tree, I don't want it either. <laughs> and we just shake our head and say, wow. Do you not realize maybe the Lord went ahead and killed dried that tree for you instantly, so you go ahead and burn it? That's where the Pharisees were. If the Lord doesn't like those people, why should we like them? I mean, if they're already lame and blind and sick and even withered, uh, paralytics, you know, where they don't use muscles, those muscles wither. A group of people who had obvious needs. Think of the people not too far from here who have obvious needs. We refer to them sometimes as felt needs. The only problem with felt needs is sometimes people feel a need for things they don't need. Uh, people go down to the ABC store every day because of felt needs that don't really exist, except for their addiction. But we're talking about here about things they feel that are real. They need help from someone, and Jesus always use those kinds of opportunities to say, you have this need, but let me tell you about your greatest need. Now, I know what you're probably already thinking. Preacher, do you know how many of those people are con men? you know how many of those people are deadbeats that wouldn't hit a lick at a snake? you know how many of those people just work the system and go from church to church to church just looking for a handout? And let me just say, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. 
Uh, we've had instances in the past, one in particular I can think of, where one guy was working churches throughout our association from Roxborough to way out in the country. But can I tell you, you don't want the cons to rob you of the opportunity to do real ministry. Uh, my doctoral supervisor said it like this, just because some men beat their wives doesn't mean I'm against marriage. In other words, you don't reject something because of the abuse of it. It's like those people who say, oh, the Internet's just a bunch of evil. Well, a lot of people do abuse the Internet and put absolute garbage on it. But can I tell you, it's very handy when I put sermons together. Man, the Internet thinks faster than I do. And if I can only remember a fraction of a Bible verse and I type it in, boom, it's sitting right in front of me in much quicker time than I could dig through a concordance trying to find it. We don't throw it away just because of ways that people misused it. We have to find the needs those people that have been rejected by society and even today may be assumed to have already been rejected by God. Now, if you get down to the end of three, the first part of four, um, you may find it just keeps going. In newer translations, you will find brackets. And it will say something like, early manuscripts do not contain the remainder of verse 3 nor verse 4. Again, here's what that part says. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Here is what most scholars believe. Uh, they will say that, as was said in this footnote in the New American Standard, it's not in most manuscripts. What they believe is this is actually a commentary on the reason why those people were laying there. And if you think through what they believe, they believe that the person who would get healed would be the person who needed it the least. Let, let that marinate for a second. The person who was most able to get up and go jump in the water would get healed. All the really sick ones would just stay sick forever. Does that sound like the grace of God? No. They were believing a myth. Nowhere in the Bible do we get such idea uh, that, how did we say it? God helps those who help themselves. That's in Second Hesitations chapter 4, isn't it? That's some of that old folk theology that's horrible. God helps those who help themselves. Uh, God helps those who realize uh, they have no way to help themselves when it comes to the real issues in life. So here we have these people uh, laid all over the place. Look again at, at the description. Verse 3, in these porches, you got five porches. So a lot of room for, we would think of that as the way we would see homeless people, vagrants, just kind of hanging out. But they're not just hanging out. Uh, they're hoping in something that's not really going to give them any hope. It, it says, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. How are those blind even going to find where the pool is without somebody there to drag them along in the process? These people are pitiful. 
And day after day after day, the scribes and the Pharisees and all their ilk walk pridefully by, giving absolutely no thought to helping those people. If anything, probably thinking, isn't there a way we can get rid of these people? Let's be honest, we've thought that. Not about sick people laying on porches by a pool. It's the person at Walmart begging for change. It's the guy riding the bicycle down there by the associational office. I don't know how well his mind is. Those people that we know not too far from here that it seems like it's so hard to help them because they seem to take advantage in all the wrong ways. And when I'm ready to dismiss those people as being beyond help, I'm reminded of Jesus in Matthew 9, verses 35 and 36. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited, literally harassed and thrown down like sheep without a shepherd you think about that picture sheep without a shepherd have only a matter of time it's only a matter of time until the predators find them and when jesus looked at the crowds that had pitiful, pitiful situations like these people at Bethesda, he was moved with compassion. He felt for them. Uh, he, he had sympathy toward them. When we are so tempted to say, well, you know, you made your bed, you can lie in it. No wonder you come from a family of thieves anyway. I think back over my life and I, I think about those families that I tell about sometime at school that the whole families were known just for doing mean and illegal things. The one family where they were somewhere between illegal and a little bit crazy. The guy who back in the 60s wanted a police car so he mounted his own bubblegum lights on top of his old car. And the local farmer that he got mad at, he stuffed his tractor carburetor full of snuff so that it wouldn't crank. And they said his mama was so mean, she'd take a hot poker and burn the cat with it just for the fun of it. And we hear those kind of stories and think, good grief. We're going to steer as far away from those folks as we can. There was another family I remember. Boy, they, they could step it up a couple of steps from that. The Carter family. Now, June wasn't with them. Mother Maybell was not with them. There was two or three brothers in there. They were hoods, thieves, fighters. One of them had gotten into it with the local constable. That was about the only law we had that wasn't bought off by the drug dealers and such. 
One night the call came in that that guy had broken into the Allensville Crop Service, Tim. He had gone into the fertilizer place to see what he could steal. And they called up Carlos, and he pulled out in about an old 75 Buick and went down there. And when the shots ended, they carried that Carter boy out with a sheet over him. And the constable was justified in what he did. Uh, the, the guy was committing a felony, and he was firing on an officer. They'd been into it before. I remember reading the headline in the local paper after that, and most people having that sense of good riddance to bad rubbish. What if I was one of those guys? What if I was a part of that family that actually knew what was going on in that family that other people didn't know? Would I be quite so quick to throw them away? Or would I be ready to say, even if they hate me for it, even if they mock me and reject me, I'm going to go love those people. I'm going to go tell them of Jesus, the mighty, to save. We've got to see the needs that are all around us. Number two, we have to intervene in their lives. Look at verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Almost four decades. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. In other words, he didn't answer Jesus' question. He gave some excuses why he hadn't already made himself well. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Jesus intentionally walks into a messy situation. Not only of a man who has been lame for 38 years, but who, according to this text, has been in this, uh, this situation for some time, which seems to imply that all right, we've already established he's been messed up for 38 years and apparently for some time has been carrying out this routine. He has tried in vain something that seems to be his only real alternative. But he couldn't get fixed. You and I know several people that are like that. Their lives are messed up, and they've been trying to fix it for a long time, but they just can't get it fixed. And it would seem like a Captain Obvious question for Jesus to ask, do you wish to get well? But we can't help but notice Jesus did, that the, the man did not answer the question. He circled the question. He, he addressed it without answering the question giving an unclear answer that really just sounds like a bunch of excuses. And he received the one thing he needed, divine intervention. 
You and I have been those people that had a list of excuses as long as our arm for a lot of things. I make some every week. Kind of makes me feel better when I don't get things done the way I should or don't do the way I should. Think about those people that don't even know Jesus who are living in addiction and abuse, both receiving and giving. They got all kinds of justifications to try to ease their minds. And the one thing they need is for someone to cut through all of that and say, here is Christ. Knowing that we can hem and haul over excuses and justifications from now until the cow comes home, cows come home, you need Jesus. And notice that when he got that divine intervention, Jesus uh, does not do uh, gradual healings like the televangelist. Come back next week and we'll see if you're any better. No. What, you, you imagine uh, this guy, if you haven't been able uh, to, to get up and move as you should for 38 years, you can figure he was pretty withered too. And the scripture says, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Because Jesus intervened in his life. Now again, you and I are not Jesus. We don't have the ability in ourselves to save them, but we have the next best thing. We can introduce them to the Savior. If we go back to the passage I was quoting from earlier in Matthew 9, pick up in verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The context of that is what I read earlier. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. In other words, this harvest that Jesus is talking about that needs workers to go out there and gather it is composed of a lot of messed up people. As I said before, they're not all white middle class people. Let's be honest, uh, there was a time, a generation ago, and a few generations before that, where going to church was what good people did. And so there were people who went to church and were receptive to church if for no other reason than it was the upstanding thing to do and it was fairly entertaining if you didn't have anything else to do. The sad part about that is it's very deceptive because there were people who were willing to mix with the church uh, the way the rabble mixed with the children of Israel when they left Egypt. You remember that? The mixed multitude, well, man, the Jews just won. <laughs> Their God just dropped the smack in Egypt. They're getting to take all this stuff. I'm not staying here. I'm going with them. And they don't get very far out in the wilderness, and guess who's causing all the trouble? The rabble. All these foreigners who have no clue who the God of Israel is, who are just along for the ride. I'm firmly convinced that many troubles that have popped up in churches in the last hundred years were because of unregenerate people who were in the church but weren't a part of the church. Uh, people who got places of leadership and influence because of who they were in the world, not who they are in the kingdom. Well, let me give you some good news. Those days are over. 
Going to church is not the thing to do anymore. We've got more than enough entertainment. We've got more than enough other things to keep us busy, if it's only sleeping because we've jammed all the rest of our time full of busyness. I believe that this is the first time in many generations where if people are going to live for Jesus, they're going to count the cost like American Christians haven't counted the cost in a long time. And we're going to find it's not necessarily those good folk, as we like to say, those fine, upstanding people. I believe it will begin to look a whole lot like it looked in the New Testament. Who were the people that Jesus uh, was bringing into the kingdom? <laughs> Boy, they were, uh, they were a motley crew. They were rough as a country sawmill, but they needed Jesus. And they were saved by the grace of God. And churches formed. And a lot of the down and outs who got saved were looked down on by the up and outs who were religious but lost. So let me ask you a probing question. If most of the people that Jesus would have you win in the next five years were below your station in life. Would you be okay with that? We're talking people who probably have very little experience even walking in a church. Weddings and funerals, and we all know that's not regular week in, week out church activity anyway. They don't know how to act. Either they don't know how to dress or they don't really have anything nice to dress in. Uh, they're crude. They're probably going to let a word here and there slip out that uh, the Spirit of God hasn't combed out of them yet through the process of sanctification. Their kids may wipe their nose on the padded pews. They may do like one of my kids got in her sister's top bunk and took a pencil and colored the wall. <laughs> I guess that seems cool when you're two. What if it started costing you something and somebody had to walk behind with the magic eraser and try to scrub that off the wall oh no little johnny took his pocket knife to the paneling we can't scrub that off they gotta go really or does our attitude need to go our prejudgments maybe your idolatry of a building that is not the church I'm not saying that to sting anybody here. It happens all over the place. In fact, it happened to Old Testament Israel. God allowed them to build a temple, and guess what? They loved the temple more than the God that it represented. We'd be better off to meet in a metal airplane hangar somewhere that's as ugly as a mud duck and really worship and really invite people in than to have some of the palatious buildings that some churches have that we are scared to death somebody's going to mess up the carpet in. We have to see the needs. We have to intervene in their lives. Thirdly, we also have to anticipate the objections. Remember we said the fire department will show up sooner or later? Well, here they come. The second half of verse 9. 
After the man picks up his pallet immediately and he walks. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. We can see the kind of eyes they're looking with. The eyes of legalism, not the eyes of life change. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. In other words, I'm just doing what I was told to do. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. So what's happening here? According to the Jews, it's the Sabbath. This is the wrong time to carry your mat. When we get down to the end of the passage, we find the Sabbath is also the wrong time to heal the sick. So the question has to be raised, is there ever a right time in your eyes? And the honest answer for them would be no, because we have no concern, no love for these people anyway. There's never a right time because they don't care about the rejects and because they don't believe in Jesus. You know, how we react to people has a whole lot to do with how we view the grace of God. You think about that old hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a pretty good guy like me. You're lucky, God. No. John Newton knew who John Newton had been. He'd been a man who had run a slave ship and had a mouth that was unbelievably foul. And he knew that his salvation was nothing less than the grace of God poured out upon a man who was absolutely wretched. And so was I. And so were you. We just conveniently forget that. We kind of like to think that we were 90% of the way home. We just needed a little boost. Can I tell you something? You were as bound for hell as any drunk, any dope pusher, any pimp or prostitute this world has ever known. And it's when we take too high a view of me that I'll have too low a view of them. And I'll say things, well, you know, I want you all to know Jesus maybe, but you don't belong in our church. And it's happened in this town in the past. Have you ever noticed that certain churches were created so the mill folk could have their church? Near where I grew up, there was the Uptown Church. And if you drove up Main Street a while, it started to stink because you were at the woolen mill. And there's not a lot of things that stink worse than wet wool. And so they built them a church up on the poor end of town so they didn't come up and mix with the rich folk. We ought to be ashamed. And we could find a lot of examples of that in the history of Roxborough and the surrounding area. Where it says, you can belong to Jesus, but you can't belong to our group. Can I ask you, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? 
you won't get a gated community to keep you away from those white trash Christians out there. And when we obey our Savior, it ought to be a foretaste of heaven. That what we do here on earth ought to be uh, like the preview clip of eternity. So that it's not just one social strata, not just one socioeconomic level, not just one color, uh, not just one culture. Oh yeah, we'll go ahead and hit them all and make us all uncomfortable. But people, read Revelation again. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation gathered around the throne praising Jesus forever and ever. And there's one criteria. Or criterion, let me say that correctly. To be saved by the blood of Jesus. It has nothing to do with whether... Uh, you came from the trailer park or the country club. It has nothing to do with whether you had two parents or never knew your parents and bounced through the system all your childhood. It has nothing to do with whether you were up and out or down and out. It has to do with whether or not you were purchased by the blood of Jesus, redeemed from the slavery of sin and set free. Now here's our last one. We've already seen that we have to see the needs. We have to intervene in their lives. We have to anticipate that there are people who are going to fight against us helping people that they don't think are worthy. And lastly, we have to look for the issues behind the issues. Remember I told you earlier about those two families of 'er ne'er-do-wells? I wish I I could say that my family cared enough to have found out what the real issues were there. But I don't know. I don't know if any of those people are still alive. I know some of them have died. When we get to verse 14, we find, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. We find that the man didn't have a resounding yes when Jesus asked, Do you want to be made well? Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, not all sickness is a direct result of your personal sin, but some of it is. And here we find an example of that. You see, this man had for years chosen sin and was willing to deal with the consequences. There was an issue behind his issue. He, he, he wasn't just lame. He had some kind of godless lifestyle that went along with that. We don't know. We don't need to know. But we know that Jesus gave clear words of warning when he said, Do not sin anymore so that nothing happens to you. Sin had led to his sickness. It makes us wonder why in verse 15 it says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Kind of leaves us wondering whether this guy didn't really appreciate Jesus calling him a sinner. 
Also makes us wonder whether this man got a physical healing and didn't get a spiritual healing. Remember, there are healings in the Bible that are uh, the result of faith, and then there are those like this one that have absolutely nothing to do with faith. Uh, The man at the beautiful gate who's begging alms from Peter and John, uh, they say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, arise and walk. has nothing to do with any presentation of faith. It reminds us that God's work uh, is not always appreciated by its recipients. Get ready. There are people that you will bend over backwards to help, and they will walk on you for it. But then again, so did your kids. So did I. Absolutely, brother. So did I. I was such a little ingrate at times. And did that stop my parents from loving me? Absolutely not. They didn't put me on Facebook Marketplace and sell me the next day. Even if it had existed then, they wouldn't have done that. Uh, Because my parents, especially my mom, had what they nowadays call the key to success, grit. Which meant, she's not going to let you beat her. She's going to keep going back. You do me wrong, I'm going to keep coming back to you, son, and I'm going to love you. And in that process, I'm going to correct you and love you at the same time. Now, that does not guarantee results, but it demonstrates one thing. I'm not going to quit on you. And I wonder how many lost people out there are thinking, yeah, those people down at the church may do uh, kind of a drive-by Great Commission. You know, they'll, they'll ease their consciences by bring me some little something and feel better about themselves, and then they'll go back to what they're doing. Or maybe they'll come give me some high-pressure evangelistic message, and if I'll just go ahead and pray that prayer, they'll go away and leave me alone, and they'll put me on the tally sheet, and we'll all be good. By the way, one of the other reasons numbers have gotten inflated over the years because the gospel was approached wrong in the first place. It became about tally sheets and not about transformed lives. Oh, the Bible loves numbers related to conversions, but it's more concerned with the conversion than the number. Don't get that backwards. If we continue reading, though, uh, we find out what happened the rest of this passage for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath in other words there continued to be enemies and Jesus never quit but he answered them my father is working until now and I myself am working For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, So we get the icing on the cake here that the deity of Jesus, that he's God, the son in the flesh, uh, just to uh, wrap it all up for us. How many of us could say that for sharing the gospel, there's people hunting me down and trying to kill me? And to think in Nigeria recently, there's been more than 200 people killed by two Muslim groups for no other reason than they claim the name of Jesus. And because they were Christians, they didn't vote for the right Muslim candidate. 
And they went out and they started killing them. One of them called the Fulani herdsmen, a bunch of shepherds out there uh, killing Christians. And yet there are still more Christians to kill in Nigeria. Why? Because they refuse to quit. By the way, that's the ultimate mark that you've been converted, that you persevere. You keep on keeping on until you see Jesus face to face. It would be easy for us to say, well, I'm going to keep the faith. I'm not going to deny my Lord, uh, but I might also keep the faith to myself until I see him. You will not change your community with that attitude. I believe that if you obey what the Spirit of God will start calling you to do, that you can't help but see diversity start popping up. Whether it's by color, whether it's by social class, doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is obedience. And not only that you'd start seeing it here, but you'd see that work start to spread. And as we said the other night, you'll see, you know what, we've, we've got an opportunity to start a completely different work over here. Not because we don't really like the way they smell and we want to keep them over there, because we realize there's a whole different mix of people over there too. And, and we can't necessarily build fast enough to have a place for them to sit. And the truth is that the great the work is done, uh, more fruit is gathered by more individual works than just more and more poured into the same work, the same church. So when we think tonight about giving them Jesus... I want to ask you, will you show people that Jesus can change their lives? You've heard Tim, Tim mention in passing, uh, who's your one? J.D. Greer, who pastors the summit in Durham, many of you are familiar with him, uh, launched that as our evangelism emphasis across the Southern Baptist Convention. It's very simple, that you pray and begin to seek who is the one person that I want to begin seeking to share the gospel with. Looking for opportunities. Creating opportunities. My one is a senior adult man who I've built a relationship with through firewood of the strangest things we could imagine. And I've started trying to take advantage of those opportunities uh, to begin peeling the layers and pouring the gospel into him. But I've realized this, I'm going to have to create some opportunities. We don't see each other often enough. I'm going to have to say, hey, let's go grab coffee. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't share the table with people that aren't my close friends. Someone said it very well years ago. Jesus came to comfort the afflicted. And afflict the comfortable. And in the process of obedience, in the process of taking Jesus to those who don't know them, get ready to get uncomfortable. You're going to go places that are not like your house. You're going to talk to people that you have almost nothing in common with. Except that you too were once a lost sinner in need of salvation. You may go into places that the first thing you do when you get home is take your clothes off at the door and jump in the shower. All right. 
That's a small price to pay to have the opportunity to share the good news. Would we rather be clean, comfortable, and disobedient? Or are we ready to do the difficult things, even the dirty situations, so that we might be like Jesus and go out and find those people in need, uh, that we might begin to intervene in their lives, that when the objections come our way, we just back our ears and keep on going, realizing that in this process, we're going to find out why these people have lived the way they live. We're going to find out why there's alcoholics and addicts We're going to find out that little Johnny acts the way he does because he never knew his daddy. That for three generations, maybe there's not been a male in this house. They've either been in the graveyard or in prison. And we don't know those things till we go start trying to find out. And to look them in the eyes and say, I can't identify with your situation, but I want you to know I love you. And I want you to know that I'm here to tell you about Jesus who will radically transform your life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege we've had to dig into your word and to be reminded of how Jesus did ministry, that Jesus went into some messy situations where people had been ignored, people had been condemned, people had been written off as unworthy. And he went in and challenged them, even if they didn't want to receive it. He knew that he was there not to please men, but to do his Father's will. Lord, may that be our motivator. uh, That we're not going out to put our, our, our feelings on our sleeves. But we're going out as soldiers in the army of God. And that we're going to be about kingdom objectives, whether they're comfortable, whether they're easy, uh, whether the hill is quickly taken or not. That we're going to put our hands to the plow and we're going to fight the good fight of faith. Until we lay those reins down and bow at the feet of Jesus. Oh Lord, do a work that's got to begin in brokenness. It's got to begin in humility. It's only going to happen by your grace because our effort doesn't want to. Our pride rears up and says, that's beneath me. But Lord, when we remember that we've been saved by the blood of Jesus and that Jesus humbled himself even to death on a cross, Lord, we know there's nothing beneath us. God, as we sing the hymn of invitation tonight, remind us that this is our time to respond to what you just told us in your word. Oh God, I pray that we would say, yes, Lord. I'll go wherever you want to go. I'll do whatever you want to do. Even if it makes me uncomfortable. Uh, Even if it, it challenges every fiber of my being. Lord, tonight I lay all of that down in exchange for the glory of my King through the obedience of His servant. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.